Um, all right, we're going to look at the scriptures now. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, grab the black Bible under the chair, turn to page 960. Page 960, we're continuing our series at the end of 1 Corinthians that we've called What's Wrong with Church? And I want to clarify, I had a question about it this week. At the spiritual level, when uh, God looks at you and your faith in Jesus, he sees you as absolutely perfect. So in that sense, there's nothing wrong with you. God is pleased with you. And then there's this experiential level by which we actually live out what we believe. And God calls us to live in such a way that we're putting away sin because we believe what God says about us, that we're his adopted child. And so there's a, there's a once for all, God loves you, he's delighted in you when you trust in Jesus, you're perfect in Christ. And then there's an ongoing putting off these struggles that we have. And that's the tension that we're talking about as we say, what's wrong with the church? There are still things that we need to put away. We need to believe what God says about us, that he loves us and he delights in us. And as we believe that, that breaks the power of sin in our lives. We're able to walk in a new way. We're able to obey him in ways that we were not able to before. This week, it's called Use Clear Speech. Use Clear Speech. That's the main idea for chapter 14, verses 1 through 25. Next week, we'll come back to the tail end of chapter 14, but we're going to get most of the main arguments of chapter 14 today. The big idea is to use clear speech. That's the charge for the church, both for the leaders and congregation members, that we would be clear, that we would speak clearly. I'm going to give you a little illustration about this from my own life. Several years ago, I was in Guatemala. We do a lot of work there. We have a partner named Natalie Rocco. Uh, she grew up at this church, and now she's a full-time global worker down there in, in Guatemala, partnering with our sister church. Uh, we were down there, and I had just met my translator. I had a translator assigned to go with me for the week so that, why? So that I could communicate clearly, right? Because I don't speak very good Spanish. I speak a little bit, but not enough to communicate clearly. And when I first met my translator, I was having this issue. I had just gotten these new socks, and I like to wear really short socks because long socks make my eggs lit, my legs itch. Eggs litch? My legs itch. So I was wearing these short socks. They were brand new. I hadn't really worn them much before, and they were really stretchy, and they kept like rolling down under my heel. Have you ever had socks like that? It was driving me insane. So I, I'm there, and I'm trying to understand the stuff I'm hearing in Spanish and in English, and I'm trying to focus, but these socks are just, they're killing me, right? And so I meet Angel, my translator. I'm like, hey, Angel, great to meet you. I'm sorry if I look distracted my socks keep falling down, and it is driving me nuts. And so we're kind of laughing about it. I was like, hey, tell you what, help me learn how to say that in Spanish. I know a few Spanish words, but I can't remember the word for socks. He taught me, and so I began practicing all week long saying, mis calcetinas se están bajando. And I practiced that again and again so that I could speak clearly about this trial that was afflicting me. And so I thought it was really funny. I would say that to people every time I would meet someone new there in Guatemala. I was like, hey, good to meet you. My socks are falling down. And I got to tell you, I thought it was hilarious, but a lot of people thought I was just weird, right? <laughs> they didn't really get it. And what I want to assure you is I, I use that as a silly example. That's not the only thing I said to people, right? I'd been assigned a translator so that I could teach and preach the word of God in those churches. And he helped me to communicate God's word clearly, to, to tell of the hope that we have in Jesus, to encourage the believers and to talk to unbelievers about who Jesus is. And so I want to assure you that that was not the only thing I said. And I think it's a helpful distinction to make, right? My main idea is use clear speech, but the content matters, right? Don't just use clear speech to talk about your socks, okay? 
Paul is saying, use clear speech to talk about Jesus. The, the content matters. So there's method. We need to speak clearly. That's what the church is charged with. And then there's message. If we miss the message, we've missed the whole thing completely. And that's part of the emphasis he was making when he was talking about love in chapter 13, when he was talking about communicating the gospel to different cultures in chapter 9. He's going to come back to it in chapter 15, the overwhelming message of the conquering resurrection of Jesus. That's our foundation, right? So as I talk about method today, don't forget the message is Jesus. Jesus died for you, and Jesus can be trusted, and you can follow him. And so that's the message, but we're going to talk a lot about the methods as well. Uh, In the past, we've said that we desire for our worship services to be both sacred yet understandable. He's going to use the language of understandability in this passage. Are you speaking intelligible words or unintelligible words? Are we together worshiping God in a way that outsiders can understand? And are we worshiping God in a way together that each other as believers can understand? That's what he's going to emphasize. He's going to use two key words here in the text that are not really common today in our everyday language. One is prophecy and one is tongues. Tongues is an idiom for language. And so when he's using tongues in this passage, he's talking about speaking in a foreign language that people do not understand. And when he uses the word prophecy, he's primarily, other things too, but he's primarily talking about speaking the truth of God in a language that people can understand, okay? So that's the primary meaning. We think of prophecy with Old Testament connotations because the Old Testament prophets, part of how they proved they were speaking for God is they would predict the future. That was a very small part of what they said. If you go back and you read the Old Testament prophets, much of what they say is God can be trusted, obey him, right? The same basic message we're speaking today. Much of it is speaking the truth of God, simple truth in a language that people can understand. And so that's the primary meaning of that word. It can have other meanings as well. And some people think, uh, Wayne Grudem's a famous professor. He thinks that this is talking to the way that you might speak something that's really timely and needed for someone in a certain situation. I think it can have that meaning as well, but that's not the main point Paul's making. The main point is understandability. Use clear speech. That's the contrast. Are you going to speak in a language people don't understand, or are you going to speak in a language that people do understand? So this started, this whole tongues thing starts in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and people start speaking the Word of God in languages that other people from different countries can hear the gospel in their language. It's like the supernatural gift of translation. And they're speaking the language where they can understand. And then apparently that gift was kind of held over and people that had that gift where people could understand it kept using it when people weren't around that spoke that language. That seems to be what took place when you look at Acts 2 and then you look at Paul's critique here in 1 Corinthians. So you got people in church speaking an incoherent language that people don't understand. And he's saying, that might feel good to you, but nobody understands it. So so that's going to be the primary contrast that we're going to look at And one more thing I would uh, emphasize is that our church, we still believe that God can do whatever God wants to do. God can and does work miracles, and we want to stress that. But I also like to stress that sometimes Christians say, and we should expect it every moment of every day. And I would say, well, then it's not a miracle anymore, right? It's not supernatural if it's become natural. So I I would emphasize that, yes, pray for miracles, pray for God to heal, pray for God to move in supernatural ways. But that's not common. It's not the thing that happens all the time. And I would make that case based on Scripture. In the Scripture, there are only three times when miracles happened a lot. 
It was in the time of Moses, where God was making it clear that he was going to speak through Moses, and Moses wrote the foundational beginning books of our Old Testament. And then again, it happens in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, way later, when the kings of Israel were rebelling against God, and God says, hey, I'm still here, I'm still going to communicate my truth to you, and he's working these miracles through Elijah and Elisha. And then, miracles happened a lot, again, when? During the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. God's saying, you can trust these people, and we've bound together their words in what we call the New Testament. So there's an argument from just the, what, what we can observe that miracles are not normal, but they were often happening to show us that we could pay attention to what was being said. But we don't want to go so far that we say, there you go, they never happen anymore, right? We, we don't want to go that far. We want to say, God is God, and he can do what he wants to do. So those are kind of some parameters before we start. I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 14 and the last few verses just to get us started and and pray for us, and we'll unpack the rest of it as we move through the text. So chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So again, he's starting with this primary contrast between understandable language and non-understandable language. We're going to skip down to verse 23, kind of get the wrap up again to frame this, and then we'll go back and read all the verses as we move through it. Verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, foreign languages, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, speak in a language we understand, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He starts with talking about how clear speech builds up the church, and he ends by talking about how clear speech helps unbelievers to believe in God. So we see both purposes of the church. The church gathers to build each other up and encourage each other in our faith. Man, we're getting tired. It's it's hard for us to keep following Jesus, and we encourage one another as we gather in worship. But we also have this other job to constantly be communicating to outsiders that come in. God can be trusted, and clear speech is what ties both of those things together. So let me pray that God's Spirit would meet us here and that He would help us to hear clearly what He's saying as Jesus speaks to us through His words. Let me pray. God, we pray that Your Spirit would move among us, that You would be present in helping us to believe and trust You, that we would hear Your Word, that we would receive it. And God, we would say that the biggest miracles that You're working today are transforming our character so that we would look more like Christ and helping us to, to believe in You for the first time. So I pray that that those miracles would be taking place this morning right now as we study your word. That you'd, by your Holy Spirit, work the miracle of of trust and faith in our hearts that we would follow you, that we would trust you and see the life that you give us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look through the text, I have a pretty simple outline we'll follow. It's number one, clear speech builds up believers. That's the focus. He uses the phrases upbuilding and building up repeatedly throughout this text. Clear speech builds up believers. The second one that I want to emphasize, this is a little more subtle, it's clear speech is everyone's job. We're all responsible. It's everyone's job. We're all a part of this, right? Like, I've got the microphone, but that doesn't mean I'm the only one that has to worry about clear speech. We are all, as followers of Jesus, to speak clearly. It's everyone's job. And then number three, clear speech persuades unbelievers. Clear speech persuades 
unbelievers. It's not manipulation that persuades unbelievers. It's clear communication, right? So number one, clear speech builds up believers. And what I want to kind of point out to you before we move on with this specific text is that there's this theme throughout 1 Corinthians of the building of God. We are God's building. We are the temple of God. A temple is an ancient building in many different religions, but the Jews had it too, where people would go to meet God. And what we're told is that Jesus is the ultimate temple, right? He's the ultimate place. We see God, where God is revealed, and we have contact with the supernatural. But more than that, those that have faith in Jesus become a part of the greater temple complex. The New Testament says again and again, the church, believers are the temple. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's applied both corporately, group-wise, and individually. So chapter 3 and chapter 6, Paul's like, you're the temple of God. Organization, people, group of the church. But then he also says, you, individuals, watch how you live. Your individual lives matter because you, individuals, are temples where your neighbors are going to see God. Your buildings that, that need to be carefully constructed so that when people see your life, they see Jesus revealed in you. So he's going to use this phrase again and again, building up, and it's kind of a reference back to this theme of temple, both corporate and individual. So clear speech builds up believers, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So remember, everything we learned in chapter 13, Joey preached on it two weeks ago. I looked at some of that at the end last week. Love is the ultimate qualifier for our gifts. And I've said it this way, at, a, at one level, your gifts kind of don't matter compared to love, right? Our gifts are secondary. Love is the primary thing. Sometimes I'm using my gifts to their full capacity. I'm running as fast as I can with the gifts that God has given me to love and serve you. Other times, I'm saying, you know what? God's working through this person, and I'm, I'm supporting their gift, right? So our gifts are kind of secondary. What's primary is love, caring for the good of another, not Love as a feeling that we fall into, right? That's the cultural definition of love. Love is caring for the good of another, taking responsibility for someone, seeing that they're doing well. So verse 2, so especially, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue, foreign language, speaks not to men but to God. Now, I think uh, just interpreting this carefully, his main point is not that it's all about speaking to God. He's just saying if someone's there that can't hear it, God's the only one that understands it. That's what he's saying. So I don't think the argument is that it's primarily to speak to God because of Acts 2, where it was primarily to tell people of foreign descent that God is good and they could trust him, right? So they're speaking in these foreign languages. And Paul says, yeah, but when those people are not there that understand that language, God's the only one that can understand you. He says, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, the word mystery kind of just means things that are hard to understand, right? That's the way we use it in our language today. Uh, in the ancient world, it had a stronger religious connotation of secret things. They had a lot of secret societies. They were called mystery cults. And so we still kind of have like fraternal orders today where there are secret passwords and you know, secret rituals to get involved, but they're not as common in our world as they were in the Roman culture. Roman culture, they were all over the place. Everybody had their little clique, their little club that they belonged to. They're often called mystery cults. They had secret rituals. They had secret insider language. And Paul typically, not here, typically he says, you know what though? The mystery in Jesus is come one, come all. You're welcome, right? And so the way the New Testament typically uses the word mystery is 
It's turned upside down. The secrets are laid bare of this is who Jesus is. And so the secret of knowing God is finally uncovered in Christ. Christ is the great secret revealer, the great mystery unveiler, right? Here, though, Paul is saying you're still kind of using that pagan way of mysteries when you're speaking a language people don't understand. You're kind of acting like those insider cliques and clubs where you're keeping other people out and, and saying you have to work your way into the inner circle. And that's not really a true representation of the gospel where you are just invited in freely to the inner circle with God. So Paul's challenging them. Don't, don't be like these pagan mystery cults. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So encouragement and consolation, those words are kind of governing for us what prophecy means here. It's language people can understand, and it encourages us. It builds us up, right? It gives you courage. It gives you strength to keep going. It's a New Testament understanding of courage. Coming alongside someone, you can do it. Come on. You're going to be okay. God loves you. I love you. Let's go. And consolation, you, you feel brokenhearted. You feel like your life is a waste. You feel like a loser. You feel like you don't matter. And, and God says, I delight in you. I've adopted you. I've made you my child. I've given my life for you. So there's consolation, there's encouragement as we speak the word of God in ways that people can understand. He goes on. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So he's here hitting on what the essential problem was. The Corinthian church, they were saying, we want to worship in a way that feels good to us. It's this ancient heresy of consumerism. It's very common in our world, right? It's all about me, my product, my music, my comfort what I like, what feels good. I can drop ship it the next day. I can get that product I need to make my life happy, right? Consumerism is a problem today, and it was a problem back then. And Paul says, you know, worship's not really about consumerism. It's not about just showing up and hearing your favorite song and just, you know, having your ears tickled. It's about caring about other people. So he's challenging them to consider others, not to just build up themselves, but to build up the whole church. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Now, I just got to tell you, for a church that doesn't commonly practice speaking in tongues, that verse really makes us uncomfortable, okay? Because what did he just say? He said, I want you all to speak in tongues. There's kind of a division among Christians today. You may be unaware of this. You may be new to church. There are generally churches that are like, that's weird, don't do it. And then there are churches like, this is normal, do it all the time, right? We, we often fall into extremes, as Christians. Here Paul is saying, it can be real, it can be a blessing, that's great, but when we gather together, let's focus on this other thing that people understand. So there's kind of a both sides that he's hitting on here that makes us uncomfortable. We kind of wish he'd go with one of the extremes on either side, right? Which side is right, Paul? He's like, well, neither, right? And so he says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but this other thing's better. Focus on communicating in a way that people understand. So again, Paul's not discounting the supernatural. He's not discounting these amazing things that our Pentecostal friends are into. He's like, yeah, that stuff can be real, but focus on being clear. Focus on communicating in a way that people can understand. So it's better to speak in a language that people can understand. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless, he says, here's the alternative, unless I bring some revelation or some knowledge or some prophecy or some teaching. So he gives us four different words that all emphasize speaking clearly in a way that people 
can understand. Verse 7, here's his illustration. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So how many of you uh, have ever tried to play an instrument that you don't really know how to play? You ever done that? Yeah? You pick it up, you're like, ah, oh, a guitar, let me pick it up and make music. And it's like, you know, and it's like indistinct notes. It's not beautiful. You're not really encouraging anybody, right? It may be fun for you, but it's not fun for us, right? That, that's what Paul is saying. And then he uses the battle analogy. All ancient armies would use trumpets, right? They didn't have walkie-talkies and cell phones like we do today. They would use trumpets to communicate with the troops. I grabbed a picture online of King Tut, the ancient Egyptian king, his trumpets. Like they found battle trumpets with him. We've got ancient art of all kinds of armies, Egypt, Assyria, the Israelites, all different cultures, modern American armies, right? All different cultures would use trumpets, horns, bugles to, to sound directions for battle. And it wouldn't work if you're not making distinct sounds that people can understand. That's his whole argument, right? Are you hearing the directions and following the directions? Are we rowing in the same direction? Are we paying attention to the guidance that God has given us? Or are we just making noise? And we're just having fun. And it's like a, just a little kid that picked up an instrument and banging away, but nobody really knows what's going on there, right? That's what he's saying. We, we want to be guided into battle with unity and clear direction. So battle imagery, I'll come back to that in a second, but here let's finish what he says in these next couple of verses. So verse 8, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So, now he's coming back to their situation, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So again, Paul's not arguing that hey guys, tongues don't exist anymore, so stop it, right? Like that's not what he's saying. Again, the way I grew up, that would be my preference. I grew up in the tradition of people that were like, yeah, it's not real, it's all fake. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not really helpful to the rest of the church if, if the person that speaks that language is not there to hear it. Focus on speaking a language that people understand. That, that's his charge to us. He doesn't say, and he'll say this at the end of chapter 14, he doesn't forbid the speaking of tongues. Again, those of us that don't have that gift that makes us uncomfortable, we prefer he'd say, so stop it, forbid it, it's over. He says, don't forbid. The speaking of tongues, weird things happen, but focus on communicating in a language that people can understand so that we can rush to battle in the same direction. So, so what's the battle, right? We're, we're in such a divisive age, I'm, I'm concerned that we would misunderstand his battle analogy, right? Our central battle is against unbelief. Our central battle is against the the condemnation of the evil one who would tell us that God has abandoned us. The evil one would speak lies that what we do doesn't matter, that we should just indulge ourselves, we should just have fun. Instead, we should fight against that with the word of God, clearly communicated, so we can remember, no, no, God is good, I can trust him. And obeying him is good. His commands are not burdensome, we're told in 1 John. So, so I can do what he says. I, I'm, I'm sure about that. Not because I always want to do the right thing. I'm sure of that because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That convinces me that God is on my side, that he's good, that he loves me, he delights in me, and I can obey him. And so those are the clear notes that, that call us into battle. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus should be obeyed. Let, let's follow him together. That's, that's the battle that we're called to with these war trumpets. So our leadership at our church has a leadership value based on this passage and other similar 
passages, we call it always translate. As leaders, we're called on to always translate. So pray for us that we could continue to do this well, because here's a problem with Bible teachers. We can nerd out on the scriptures and start to go deep and just want to always talk about the Greek word and the Hebrew word and the ancient history, and, and we can just go deeper and deeper and deeper, and people are like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> like, you are losing me. And so our job is to like dig as deep as we can into the scriptures and then pull it out and communicate it in a way that is clear. And so as a leadership, we've said for our staff guide at the church, always translate. We're, we're commanded to always translate. We will seek to translate biblical truth into the language and culture of unchurched and de-churched people. We want to com- communicate the truth of Scripture in a way that ordinary, everyday people can understand. We say we're not culture-free. We all have cultural preferences, but we'll continue to examine them. We'll continue to examine our preferences. We'll try to hold our preferences loosely so that we can think like missionaries and honor the preferences of other people, try to understand them. We appreciate the good and the beautiful and diverse cultures. We will make simple clear biblical teaching and obedience more important than any tradition or trend. So a lot of people are confused about our church. If you're new, you might be confused. People come here and they're like, oh, it's a modern church. Oh, wait, no, it's a traditional church. Like, what is it? Where are you? You're all over the map. It's because those things aren't that important to us, right? We might do the trendiest thing that every church is jumping on board with because we think it clearly communicates the Word of God. And then if it doesn't, we'll throw it away. We might do weird old traditions because we think they're helpful carriers for the clear communication of the Word of God. Our priority is to clearly speak who God is, to build up the church, to help us to grow. As individuals, right? 1 Corinthians 6, we're individual temples, build up individuals so that we'll be sturdy and we'll be able to reveal God through our trust and our obedience. But also as a corporate group, that together as an organization, we would build us up, that we'd be rowing in the same direction and be organized. So pray for us and continue to apply what I said last week, Ephesians 4.29, where Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Stop the, the negativity. Stop the gossip. Stop the, oh, it doesn't matter and God hates me and Murphy's Law and all that stuff. Say, no, God is good. He can be trusted. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up for firming up, for strengthening, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Second point, clear speech is everyone's job. And let me just say as an aside, I don't know if I said this yet, there's a lot of this that we may disagree on. I'd love to talk to you more about it because we're addressing some of the stuff that is most debated in Scripture, right? So you don't have to agree with me to be here. We're glad you're here. We have a lot of different viewpoints, and I'd love to talk to you about it more. But clear speech is everyone's job. We see this in verses 10 through 19. Uh, We're all responsible. So the way I would say this is you're all responsible, and Paul's going to assert in these verses that you and I are actually in control, even when we're being led by the Holy Spirit. So this may disagree with what you were taught about being filled with the Spirit or being led by the Spirit. In some traditions, they would teach that being led by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit means you turn off your brain and your mind is not engaged. Paul's going to say, no, I I want your spirit and your mind to work together. That's what Paul's going to say in this section. Uh, There's a song that was pretty popular, I think, back in the 90s, and it had this lyric that said, I can't be held responsible because we were only freshmen. Anybody know that song? It was the Verve Pipe. It was like a one-hit wonder. I don't think they had any other good songs. Um, No offense, Verve Pipe, but 
It's the only one I remember. We can't be held responsible. We were only freshmen. Paul's going to say to the church, no, we're all responsible. You are responsible. What you say matters. You're not out of control. Being led by the Spirit doesn't mean you have no brain. You should remain in control. And that's what he's going to say here in this text. Okay, starting in verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He comes back to that again. Look for ways to build each other up. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Again, some of us culturally, we may wish he forbid this and said, just stop doing it. No, he said, if you're going to do it, at least interpret, at least make it clear so that people can understand. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. You see that? He's pushing against that, that kind of understanding that, oh, the spirit has come over me and I'm now out of control. I'm just going to speak in the spirit and my mind is, is shut off. He's like, no, keep your mind turned on. Keep your mind in control. He says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Keep your mind engaged. Verse 16, otherwise... If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So again, he's stressing here responsibility, saying the other person's not being built up. You need to think about the other person. Worship's not just about you feeling good about yourself. You're not to just mindlessly engage in feeling close to God but we can simultaneously feel close to God by the Spirit and think with our mind, is this understandable and edifying building up to those around me? That's the challenge that Paul gives us. We're responsible. We're still in control to some degree, even as we walk by the Spirit. He goes on, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Again, if you grew up like me in a non-Pentecostal environment, you're like, wait, what, Paul? Did you mean to say that? I'm not sure about that. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 19, but here's his bottom line. Nevertheless, in church, in the gathering, is what he's saying when we come together, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So we're not going to forbid speaking in tongues, but we're going to say, let's speak in a language that we can understand. Paul's just said, it's better to speak five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible words. So let's focus on that. That's going to be the priority of what we do. That's why we make Bible teaching the center of our gathering. That's why our small groups are built on people sharing what's going on in their lives in a language that we can understand, talking about the scripture together and saying, hey, let's pray for each other. Let's, let's help each other to walk in obedience to Jesus. This clear communication is everyone's job, and we all do this together. So I grabbed a picture to illustrate this of geese flying in V formation. Y'all ever watched geese do this? Um, it's really cool. You know, you've heard scientists study this. There are really cool different aspects of why this is valuable. Um, it actually is aerodynamic, right? It helps them to kind of relieve the burden as they fly as a team together. When we all pitch in, like Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where one body, many parts, we're helping each other. It's not like one person matters and the rest don't. We all need each other in the body of Christ to be a functioning temple. You can't just have an altar only or a roof with no walls, right? You need all the parts of the building. And so geese illustrate this. We see this in many places in the animal kingdom. In Proverbs, we're admonished to look at the animals 
Jesus admonishes us to look at the birds and look at the lilies of the field, right? We're told to look at the natural world and learn things about God's order. It's really challenging to recognize that many animals in the animal kingdom exhibit better unity than we do as human beings. And I think that is to convict us like, oh, okay, if a dumb animal can do this, maybe we could do this too, right? Maybe we could unify. They, they honk to each other to encourage one another, right? Um, I guess they're speaking clear language in, in their honking language there. The leader will sometimes get tired and float back to the back, and then another one will come up front and lead. They're, they're pitching in. They're helping each other. We, we need each other in the body of Christ. Clear speech is not just my responsibility. It's not just the youth director's responsibility. It's not just the Sunday school teacher's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to speak to each other in a language that we can understand. Colossians and Ephesians talks about this even with the singing of the church. It says that as we sing, we're not just singing for ourselves, right? Again, iPhone generation, we think of music as our personal little comforter, right? I want to hear my music. But we're commanded as a church to sing to each other. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to exhort one another, to encourage one another that Jesus can be trusted. And so when we come together, we're encouraging one another as a unified team, right? We're all responsible. Clear speech is everyone's job. I enjoyed, you guys did a good job singing today. Thank you for singing. When, when the church is singing out, I think that's a moment where we're recognizing that God is good and he's worthy of praise, but we're also recognizing that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, and we actually encourage one another. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where like no one's participating. What does that make you, you feel like? It makes you feel like not participating, right? But when you come into a place where everybody's excited to be there and everybody's participating and it's understandable, Right? And you're like, okay, this is like something's happening here. God, God is moving. So we encourage one another. So next steps, we, we talk about these next steps in different ways, but recognizing that clear speech is your job, you should practice doing this. I think one of the best ways to get better at speaking prophetically, right, which sounds crazy and, and supernatural, right, is just to read the word, read the words of the prophets, and then practice having deep conversations with each other. I think it is, it's that simple, right? We're in such a rushed world. We never have time to talk to each other. We communicate in little bits and bites. Just, just practice the gift of time, like communicating about real things with each other and communicating in ways that, that highlight the truth of God's word, that Jesus is good and that he can be trusted. It's a simple practice that we could all engage in. Here's some other next steps. We talk about three-by-five groups. If, if you go to our website, under small groups, we have like groups you can join that meet at the church and meet in houses. But you can also start a group. We have a little card, a three-by-five card, and it's got five things that you can do. So the idea with that is a play on words. is three people doing five things. It's like share your high, share your low, read scripture, pray together, talk about it. So it's just a little card you can print out and say, you know what, I'm just going to Meet with that one Christian friend before work or at lunch. We're going to talk about the truth, encourage one another. That's a practice of speaking clearly about who God is and that you can trust him. Begin practicing this in, in simple ways. And, of course, we talk about speaking. We'll give you um, curriculum if, if you want to teach with the kids or the youth. It'll be part of the women's studies or the men's studies. There are a lot of different ways to practice this, but... I'd ask you to pray about what's the next step for you. Like, how can you, how can you practice this? Owning that it's everyone's job. We're, we're all in this together. 
It's not just a few upfront speakers, but it's the whole church is to speak clearly about God's goodness. Man, we have a great opportunity with the Good News Club, right? That announcement that Steve made, that's a great opportunity coming up. It's like he said, it's a sprint. It's just seven weeks. It's intense. 108 kids. It's really intense, okay? But you'll get to practice speaking the truth in an understandable way. Okay, third point. Third point, clear speech persuades unbelievers. Clear speech persuades unbelievers, so the church is not just about building up believers, and it's not just about building up unbelievers. It's about both, and he's coming here to the part about unbelievers at the end. A key verse that describes this is Romans 1.16, where Paul says that there's power in the gospel, the message, right? I joked earlier that we're talking a lot about clarity, but we can't forget the actual message. There's power in the message, and we want to speak it clearly But the gospel is the good news of Jesus, and Paul says there's power as we communicate that truth to save both the Jew and the Gentile. No matter what culture you're in, that message is what saves you. And this contradicts our temptation to want to lean on manipulation of some kind to get people to believe in Jesus, right? And so this would be a contrast between a a historic church's emphasis on the means of grace. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before, the means of grace. Anybody heard that? So the means of grace is just kind of like the places where we meet God's grace. That's a way to talk about it. Historically, you would say things like the preaching of God's word in an understandable way, right? Practicing baptism, communion. It's fascinating to look at the rituals of the Christian church and compare them to the rituals of other religions. One of the, the clearest things that you'll notice is we have like the simplest, clearest rituals in the world. It's really amazing. They're so simple, right? In the Old Testament, they had all these different layers and all this different meaning. And now in Christ, we've just got these two things we call ordinances. Some people call sacraments, right? Baptism is a simple symbolic washing. What does that show us? It shows us that we know that Jesus has washed away our sins. And then a simple symbolic meal, communion. We eat bread, we drink wine or juice to say, Jesus is our food and drink. Jesus provides for us. He's the one that gives us life. We have these simple ways, again, historically referred to as means of grace, just simple means of communication, that Jesus is good, you can trust him, you can obey him, you can follow him. And so as we practice those things, clear communication, that's how unbelievers will be persuaded. Now, in contrast to that, some people would use the term revivalism, not revival. Revival is good, right? That means like new life. We all want revival. But revivalism is this culture that sprung up around revivals in American Christian culture where people started to find like tricks and tools uh, to kind of make people feel high and low and emotional and trick people into committing their life to Christ, even though they didn't really believe the gospel. You know, there's, there are these methods of psychological manipulation that we can employ. Some people are really good at it. Some Christian leaders get a, a lot of following just because they're really good at moving people. Paul says the power is in the message not in the manipulation. So we don't want to fall for the culture of revivalism. We want revival, but not the culture of revivalism where we try to manipulate people. So verse 20, he says in verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 28, And before that, reference to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God said, if if you don't obey me, there's going to be judgment. How how do you know judgment is coming? You know judgment's coming when you got this invading army that doesn't speak your language. That's a sign of judgment. 
Isaiah says it's come upon us now, Isaiah 28. This judgment is here. We don't understand their language. Foreigners have taken over. In the Old Testament, that was a sign of judgment. And so he's saying, you're going to feel sense judgment if you don't understand people. You ever walked into a room and people had like, you know, a conversation going about some insider thing and you didn't know what was happening? You just, you feel like an outsider, right? Paul's saying people shouldn't feel that way in unnecessary senses when they come into the church. And there's some degree to which everybody feels an outsider to having a relationship with God if they don't know him. But we shouldn't add to that. We shouldn't add unnecessary barriers and make it worse than it needs to be. Another way to say this is if you're speaking in a language that people don't understand, it's kind of like you're just saying, go to hell. Go to hell. That's what he's saying. It's the language of judgment. What if we said, Jesus loves you. Jesus has died for you. We're all going to hell. But Jesus came in and he snatched us. He grabbed hold of us. And he said, I'm, I'm going to give my life to forgive you, to pay for your sin, to give you resurrection life and forgiveness. That language can only come through if we speak intelligibly. The gospel has to be spoken in a language that people understand. Thus, verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. The way I would phrase this, given the verse that comes before and the verse that comes after, because this is kind of a confusing little sentence here, is that tongues is a sign of unbelief. Prophecy is a sign of belief, right? If you hear something you don't understand, then that's a sign of unbelief. I don't, I don't get it. I'm an outsider. I'm, I'm not invited in. Prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is beautiful because, again, I think we're tempted to, to woo people into the kingdom. I know I, I personally have, have a gift of friendliness, right? Like I, I love to comfort people and encourage people. I've shared this before. Preachers are tasked with afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, right? I prefer to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes we are too afflict the comfortable as well. He's saying here, if you, if you clearly speak the word of God, there's a sense in which both are taking place. The secrets of our hearts are laid bare. It's like our insides are exposed, and that's terrifying. But it's so that we can find relief in Jesus. Right? The law kills, but the gospel gives life. And so that understanding comes when the gospel is communicated in a language that people understand. I grabbed a picture of an ultrasound. Uh, one of the joys when someone's pregnant is having an ultrasound and like seeing the baby and you can see the heartbeat and you can see that baby moving around and statistics are showing that more and more people are becoming pro-life as they see that, that this child is a human being. They can see the insides, right? The truth is being disclosed. And I think that's an analogy for what happens when we clearly communicate the word of God. When we just say, no, we have our traditions, we have our trends, we have our churchy way of talking, we have our way of doing things. We don't care if outsiders understand because it's for us, right? Paul's saying, no, speak clearly so that outsiders can understand, so that unbelievers can see that Jesus is good and they can understand the truth of who God is. We see this lived out 
uh, in Acts 17. Paul is preaching to the Athenians, pagans, and he doesn't start with the Old Testament prophets, right? Because they don't read the Old Testament prophets. He starts with, with their own poetry and their own literature and their philosophy. He starts by quoting their people, right? He doesn't agree with everything they say, but he pulls out the stuff that's true and he says, hey, even your own poets have said this, right? And then he builds a bridge and he connects what the Old Testament has said with what their poets have said. And, they, and he says, see here, there's clearly some things that you and I agree on, but there's some other things you need to be challenged with. There's this Jesus that's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's proven to us because of his resurrection. So Paul takes their truth and he adds on the missing pieces of the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, this is, this is the truth. So we see this model where Paul is willing to meet them where they are as much as possible, but still challenge them with the truth. So again, we don't persuade unbelievers by, by wooing them and tricking them. We, we try to be as, as kind and as clear as possible, but we want to communicate the truth of who Jesus is. I think the flip side of this is what's happened in so many churches. We've seen this a lot in the last 10 or 20 years where people that have an exceptional gift of communicating to those outside the church begin to be better and better at communicating to those outside the church and begin to leave behind the message of Jesus. And their focus is all about building that bridge, but they've left behind the message. And so again, we've got to join those two things together. Um, so pray for us. Pray that we would do that clearly here at Grace Bible Church, that, that ultimately Jesus would be lifted up and we'd speak clearly about him because we believe that's the thing that's going to build us up as followers of Jesus, but also help outsiders to, to see Jesus and see that he's good and see that he can be trusted. We, we want to be about both. We don't want to pick a side in that debate, but say we're about Jesus. And the more we're about Jesus and speak that clearly, the more believers will grow deep in their faith and the more unbelievers will come to faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. So we'll wrap up here. The big idea is, is to speak clearly, to use clear speech. We're all a part of that. God's got a role for all of us to play. I thank you for the way that you do this. You do this so well. I think that's one of the great uh, strengths of Grace Bible Church. So I'm going back to what I mentioned before in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, we are this building, and God is building us together, right? He's not finished with us yet. We are God's building. We belong to him. He's using us to tell a story to the world. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.11. He says, and no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're building on again. So we've talked a lot about methods. Speak clearly, speak in a language people can understand, but let's not leave behind the message, which is the foundation he's building on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us.